before bed every night, I go in and I pray with my boys. And uh, Adam, our five-year-old, over the last, I don't know, maybe it's just been around a month or something like that, uh, he's been asking me to pray that there wouldn't be any wars in Kamloops. Now, I don't really know where that concern came from. Uh, And to our grown-up ears, it might sound pretty naive. There's not going to be wars in, in, in Kamloops. But Adam, he doesn't take that for granted. So we pray. And so if there's no wars in Kamloops, you know why. Adam's been praying for that. So <laughs> just remember, thanks, Adam. Anyways, uh, but his prayer request is a legitimate one for five-year-olds all around the globe. Every night there's five-year-olds going to bed praying that there wouldn't be war or violence in their area or their home. And Adam's concern about wars in Kamloops is valid on another level as well. There's kids and teens and adults all over Kamloops who are experiencing a pain of a sort of, word, a sort of war, and that's the war of words. You know, we've, we've all probably heard it. Sticks and stones may break your bones, but names will never hurt me. I don't know if kids still say that today. Um, they used to when I was a kid, but we all know that is totally not true. If anything hurts us, what really damages us, man, it's words. Words without care unravel relationships. In the little letter of James, um, we read that the tongue, what we do with our words, the tongue, it's this tiny little part of our body. But James says it can actually steer the whole course of our life. He compares it to the rudder on a ship. Just this little tiny thing just changes the whole direction of this massive Massive thing. Then James gives us a pretty bleak um, little summary here. He says, the tongue is also a fire, a world of evil among the body parts. It corrupts the whole body, sets the whole course of one's life on fire, and is itself set on fire by hell. Wow, James, tell me what you really think of words. Uh, He doesn't downplay the incredible power that our words have. His conclusion, he says, with the tongue, we praise our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse human beings who've been made in God's likeness. He says, out of the same mouth come praise and cursing, my brothers and sisters, this shouldn't be. Praising God, then turning around and and, and cursing out a human being made in God's image, that is not right. James says, words have power, and we know it. Uh, In a similar vein, the Apostle Paul writes in Ephesians 4.29, he says, don't let any unwholesome talk. And the the Greek word from wholesome there is is sapros. It can just be translated things like putrid or corrupting. Don't let any talk that corrupts or corrodes relationship, that cuts people down, don't let any of that come out of your mouth. But only, what, what comes out? Only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that that the hearers might benefit from what you have to say. Our words to benefit, to encourage, not to tear down. And we know it in our experience. All of us do. We know that words are powerful. They can heal and they can wound. And all of us have that capacity in us. But what do we do? Here's our question this morning, really. Where do we go when words have been used like weapons against us? Our series in the Psalms shows us how these these prayers and songs that are all collected together, they bring us before God for every kind of situation in life. And and this isn't an an exception. 
Um, this morning, we're going to look at Psalm 140. It's a, it's, a, it's a psalm that belongs in the category called lament psalm. See, um, it's actually the majority of psalms are in the key of complaining. They are in, the key, in a minor key. They're talking about, God, this hurts. God, this is hard. God, where are you? And they're totally honest before God. But Psalm 140, um, I, I, I picked myself to preach on this one because it, it's particularly difficult. Within the lament psalms is another smaller category of psalms called imprecatory psalms. And that's just a fancy way to say cursing psalms. These psalms, they not only say, God, protect me from my enemies. They say, let those guys get what they deserve. And they get a, God gets an earful. And we'll hear that this morning. These are pr- prayers calling on God to actively oppose those who oppose us. But I know that raises a lot of questions for us. How should we as, as, as Christians understand these kinds of psalms, these prayers that are particularly negative, even they have this like vengeful bent. Like doesn't the coming of Jesus, his gracious work on, on the cross for us, doesn't that change kind of our relationship to these psalms, give us a new slant? Well, here's the reality. You have been hurt by someone's words and you will be again. The question is what are you gonna do with that, with the feelings that brings up. How do we respond? This Psalm 140, it is not gonna answer all your questions on that, but it's gonna answer the most important one. It's gonna bring you before God to talk about it. So, um, would you pray with me as we begin this morning? God, we're so thankful that uh, you inspired this Psalm to be written down in this way, so that we might know how we can address you and join our prayers to the prayers of those that have been prayed for millennia now. And we also ask God that you give us wisdom to know in what ways you're, you're calling us to pray in the presence of enemies, that you would give us wisdom in light of the cross as well. In Christ's name we pray, amen. So open with me in your Bibles. Uh, love to encourage you to bring like hard copy Bibles. They do exist. I've seen them. I actually own a few. I use it regularly. I like Bibles. Let me just give you a plug for like like hard copy ones. Um, when you're reading stuff, you get to see that, that you're reading a small piece of a very, very large book, okay? So I love that you can see the whole context. So bring your paper Bibles to church too. I just encourage you to do that. But if you've got your Bible app, you can open that too to Psalm 140 and do your thing here. Um, let's read this together. Well, I'll read it and you listen, so don't read it together with me. But, or you could. Just, this is not on my notes, by the way. Hear the word of the Lord, Psalm 140. For the director of music, a psalm of David. Rescue me, Lord. Rescue me from evildoers. Protect me from the violent who devise evil plans in their hearts. And they they, they stir up war every day. They make their tongues as, as sharp as a serpent's. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Keep me safe, Lord, from the hands of the wicked. Protect me from the violent who devise ways to trip up my feet. Like the arrogant have hidden a snare for me. They've spread out the cords of their nets and have set a trap for me along along my path. I say to the Lord, you, you are my God. Hear, Lord, my cry for mercy. Sovereign Lord, my strong deliverer. You shield my head in the day of battle. Do not grant the wicked their desires, Lord. Don't let their plans succeed. 
those who surround me proudly, they, they rear their heads. May the mischief of their lips engulf them. May burning coals fall on them. May they be thrown into the fire, into miry pits, never to rise. May slanderers not be established in the land. May disaster hunt down the violent. I know, I know that the Lord secures justice for the poor and he upholds the cause of the needy. Surely the righteous will praise your name and the upright will live in your presence. Let's take a closer look. First, and this might be the most important point, and I'll come back to it in various ways. Notice who is being addressed. Rescue me, Lord. Rescue me, Lord. Where do we go when we're experiencing uh, the pain of maybe a verbal attack from others? We want to grab the keyboard. We want to grab our phone and, and write back with our own slanderous, venomous response to that Facebook post or, or whatever it happens to be. Or we begin to talk to other people about what a jerk so-and-so is. And we aim to run them down behind their back in slander. But the psalmist prays. And it's a deeply honest prayer of the pain that can be inflicted by words. They make their tongue as sharp as a serpent's. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Ever felt, don't put up your hand, ever felt that kind of way before? I know you have because you're human. And we live in this broken world and all of us have experienced this to some extent. But these words are not directed at slandering the other. There's, they're not a jab. There's no retaliation in them. These words are directed to God. So if we take our pain anywhere, take it there. Take it to the one who knows all about it. Second, uh, this psalm is refreshingly honest about the reality of evil and suffering in our world. This isn't a head in the sand kind of faith to try to ignore things or paper over them. No. Rescue me, Lord, from evildoers. Protect me from the violent. Why? Because there are violent and evildoers in our world, and we might experience the other end of what they are up to. And third, this is the stuff of, Daddy, pray that there would be no wars in Kamloops. See, so there's this deep, childlike trust in the living God. This is an expression of our reliance on him. It's saying, Lord, I need you to defend me. And then it's the belief that he actually can and he will. When you face a verbal attack from somebody, there's this sense of hopelessness, isn't there? in the face maybe of unfair accusation or pointed criticism that's aimed to bring you down, boy, I'm not galvanized. I'm, I'm gutted. So this psalm leads me to pray, God, I, I trust you for your help. It's a cry from the depths of our heart. But fourth, even in that place of feeling gutted, there's this incredible confidence, this trust that we gain from this prayer. Look at verse six again. I love this. It says, I say to the Lord, you are my God. Hear, Lord, my cry for mercy. Sovereign Lord, my strong deliverer, you shield my head in the day of battle. Do you hear the confidence, that hope to recognize that it's the sovereign Lord? It's to say, my ultimate future, Lord, is in your hands, no matter how bleak my present looks. My future is in your hands. Now, 
I'm not trying to say that when it comes to just having conversations with people that, uh, that we won't have to communicate clear boundaries with others. We'll need to do that at times, especially if we're going to have like healthy, ongoing relationships. There'll be times we need to lovingly say things like, this isn't something I'm cool with, but we don't act out of a sense of I'm all alone in this and I have to fight and defend myself to fight my way through it. No, we have a firm footing. We have a place, no better, a person on which we stand, where we find our hope, our security, and our identity. See, here's what this kind of prayer does for us ultimately. When we locate our hope in the living God, we say, you're my defender, my strong deliverer, as the psalmist prays here, then I don't have to act in fearful defensiveness. This is exactly what Jesus does with his pain. Listen to 1 Peter 2 21 to 23, to this you were called, Peter writes. He's writing to a church of people who are facing persecution because of their commitment to Jesus. They are up against it. He says this, to this, that life that's hard, you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. You're going to go through the same stuff. What does it say of him? He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. So he's completely innocent can't be said of us, but of him, yes. Completely innocent person. What does he do? When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. Wow, how different than the natural bent of my heart. He didn't say, I'll get you back. I'll make you pay. I'll make you feel what you made me feel. No. He entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. That confidence in his father to work out justice in his time, that's where we take our pain. So here's one major take home for us today. In the face of maybe an unjust accusation or spiteful words by those who maybe intending to or not have caused us pain, Jesus is our pattern. Not retaliation, but deep trust in God's ultimate sovereignty. And not only do we have a source of strength in the Lord, but a deep-seated identity. Verse 6 again, I say to the Lord, you are my God. Just notice what that does for you. That puts you in relation to him. See, there can be this crushing sense of like, who am I? Or am am I worthless? In the face of verbal attack, you can feel so rootless. And yet in praying this prayer in this way, it places my feet on solid rock again. You are my God, which is saying, I belong to you, Lord. No matter what pressure I face, I'm ultimately yours. Paul gives us a New Testament kind of version of this in Romans chapter 8. He's been making a long argument through the book. And then he gets to this chapter 8, he says, now, therefore, There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you have put your trust in Jesus, if you've recognized your need for him and and you've you've prayed and and ordered your life around this reality that Jesus, God the Son, died and was raised for you and offers you uh, the free gift of eternal life and hope and newness, if you are in Christ, this is your promise. There is no condemnation for you. There's none. 
Paul will go on to say this later in the chapter, who will condemn us? Like who will pronounce judgment over you if you're in Christ? No one. Nothing, Paul says, in all of creation, no painful circumstance, uh, not even spiritual beings like God's enemy and his demons, nothing in all creation, Paul says, can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Now that is confidence. And that's what we have when we place our trust in Jesus. So in spite of the verbal venom, we cling to the truth of whose we are, his beloved. Quick recap so far. We've seen in this psalm, we bring our pain to God. Scott, I'm going to talk with you about this too. We're honest about the evil and brokenness of our world and that it really hurts. God, I have enemies, I have real pain. Three, we ask for help. See, we're not on our own in this. God, I have real enemies and I'm trusting you. Protect me. Help me. <laughs> and four, we gain incredible confidence, a rootedness through this prayer. It says, God, I am relying on you and I'm trusting in who you say I am. But then there's this, this turn in the psalm and, and you heard it as we read it. There's this shift and boy, it's not talking just about me and God anymore, my pain, my protection, my confidence. No, it shifts to them, to my enemies and opponents. Look again at, psalm, uh, at the psalm starting at verse eight. He says, do not grant the wicked their desires, Lord. Don't let their plans succeed. And you know what? That's fair enough, right? Boy, I can get behind that kind of prayer any day of the week. Someone's got something evil planned for me. God, protect me. Keep me from that. But then, verse 9, those who surround me proudly rear their heads. May the mischief of their lips engulf them. Now, I, uh, I grew up on a farm as a kid, and so we just did what farm kids did, and we made all kinds of crazy instruments of, I don't know, we made a boomerang. That's what I'm trying to say. <laughs> we, we made bows and arrows and traps and all kinds of things, but I remember making a boomerang and trying to get the angle of the things just right and, and learning how to whip that thing, and it would, you know, the amazing thing about boomerangs is they come back to you. You know what the terrifying things about boomerangs is? They come back to you. You know, you, you end up throwing it, and you look up at the sun, and you think, I don't know where it is. And then you're just ducking and hoping. Uh, because you know what? Uh, a boomerang's not a toy. It is an instrument of death. It is meant to kill things. And so it's a, it's a dangerous thing. And when I read that part of the prayer, I think of a boomerang. God, I'm asking what, whatever they had planned for me, that would just come right back on them. And you might think, well, that sounds a little, hmm, it's not very gracious, Sure. This is a true expression of how the psalmist feels. And there's this sense of, God, you're going to work for justice, right? You're going to make sure things are fair in this world, aren't you? You can see that in what the psalmist is asking there. But then, well, then it moves to sound a bit more, well, bitter. Verse 10, may burning coals fall on them. May they be thrown into the fire, into miry pits, never to rise. May slanderers not be established in the land. May disaster hunt down the violent. This is the place at which Christians go, pause button, I'm not sure. We can pray that as a Christian based on what Jesus has taught us because really Jesus has the final word in these things. Here's what we read in Matthew 5, 43 to 45. Jesus says, you've heard it said, love your, love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I tell you, love your enemy. Pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good. He sends rain, and that's supposed to be a good thing, on the righteous and the unrighteous. So the question becomes, is, 
Is this prayer in the Psalms something that we should still pray today or is, has something shifted since the coming of Jesus? And now, um, we know that there are, there's both continuity and discontinuity between the Old and New Testament. Um, not everything in the Old Testament is still continuing in its relevance after the coming of Jesus. The book of Hebrews, for example, is an extended sermon arguing how Jesus replaces the sacrificial system, that he is the once and for all time um, revelation of God and the one who does what needs to be done on our behalf. See, the Bible is an unfolding story of God's creative and redemptive love. And the Psalms, while we find out that they are a reflection of a life on God that comes in the middle of the story, there is still more to come more that God will reveal of himself through Jesus. So should we pray the cursing Psalms? Like, in what sense do we approach this in prayer now? Now, as you might have guessed, this is not a, there's not a straightforward answer to this. There are really different conclusions that different Christian people have come to on this. And so uh, I'm going to give you what I think is the most helpful way to read an imprecatory Psalm and to make use of it today. And other people will have different ways of viewing this. So you're going to get my take on it. Psalms of imprecation. Three quick points from the Old Testament that help flesh this out for us. First, these psalms are the free response of Israel to God. So they're just being honest with God in these psalms. Um, if they weren't their free response, then they would be meaningless. And so that, you're going to say, okay, well, so these are the prayers of the people. Yes, they are. But God also inspired this to be written down. Yes, he did. So they're both, they are teaching us about God, but they're also teaching us about how God's people have interacted with God in the past. Both of those things are present. Second, in the Old Testament context, there was no real distinction between the sin and the sinner. So the psalmist wouldn't think that God might be uh, condemning sin, yet still trying to redeem the sinner. They just wouldn't really have that in their view. But in the New Testament, that distinction comes out more clearly. Third, the Israelites had a less developed sense of the life after this life. Now, they did have a sense of it. It definitely believed that there was more beyond, but that doesn't get nearly as fleshed out as it does in the New Testament. And they didn't have the same level of assurance that God would vindicate the righteous uh, at the end of time, not to the same level of confidence that New Testament Christians can have. And so what do we as Christians, having a bigger part of the picture fleshed out, when it comes to prayer, what do we do? Join in, modify, kind of mix things up? Here's what I think. First, the emotion of anger that we read of in this psalm, this concern, that emotion is not sin. To have some way of expressing our anger and a desire for perpetuators of violence to face justice. You might say, as a, you know, the punishment needs to fit the crime. That's actually, if you want that, that's a sign of emotional health. That's a, it's a good thing. Anger itself is not moral. It's not good or bad. It's a reality that God has given us to tell us that something is wrong in the world. That's what anger is telling you, that something is out of joint, something's wrong. Uh, Eugene Peterson is right, I think. He says, just as hurt is the usual human experience that brings us to our knees praying for help. So hate or anger is frequently the human experience that brings us to our feet praying for justice, catalyzing our concern for the terrible violations against life all around us. Hate is often the first sign 
that we care. Just think about this for a second. If God were not angered when humans, they ruin the peace and harmony that he intended for humanity. If God were not settled in his opposition against that which distorts and destroys his good creation that he made and loves, would he really be a good God if he were not angered by that? I would say no. So we need to see that anger in itself is not morally wrong. It's a God-given emotion to tell us that something is wrong. Now, one of the things that might be wrong is our assessment of the world. Yes, we can actually be angry for the wrong reasons. In that case, the thing that's wrong might be that just the way that we're perceiving the issue. It's, it's possible for us to be angry for no good reason. That's true. See, we can be angry in a very selfish, self-centered kind of way. And it's in that sense, it's the self-centeredness that gets expressed in anger. That's the sin. Notice in Ephesians 4, when Paul talks about this, um, he gives us these instructions. In your anger, do not sin. Notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say anger is sin. No. In your anger, when you're angry because something has happened in our world or to you that is unjust or unfair, that distorts healthy relationship, when you experience the emotion of anger, don't let that lead you to sin. Don't let it lead you to escalating the situation in violence. Rather, be a peacemaker with your words and actions. Don't use your words to seek to hurt others, to retaliate, to damage their reputation as payback. It could be stated like this, be angry, but don't let it lead to sin. Sin at heart is self-centeredness. It's me at the center, driving God out, seeking my interests. So when we are angry and then use it to get our own way at the expense of others, that is sin. Feeling angry, that's a natural God-given gift to let you know something's wrong. So what do we do with it? This psalm tells us at least part of it. We bring it to God. We pray our anger. We even give full vent to it. And we trust in God's justice. We follow Jesus' example. And here's his example. He entrusts his hurt to his father. And then we we can pray our anger. We can do that, absolutely. But then we turn, and what did Jesus say from the cross to those who are crucifying him? Father, forgive them. So we pray our anger and we forgive those who hurt us. Gee, Willie, I made that sound easy. Uh, I know it's not. But when you've experienced God's grace towards you, when you've been freed because of his lavish forgiveness and grace, you are now freed to be able to let others off the hook. And you're the one who actually gains freedom through that. That's the second point. So on the one hand, the cursing psalms are an expression of anger, but notice who is on the receiving end. Where is the cursing going? Is it expressed at somebody? Do you take the wrongdoer and... No, there is... It's all directed to God in prayer. The psalmist doesn't spew his anger into the world or at other people. It's all directed to God. You need to know this. God's shoulders are big enough to handle your complaints, your anger, your fear, your worry. And the Psalms give us language to express that. You don't have to clean yourself up. Don't have to hide your emotional state from God. God knows it all already. You can't hide it. 
So chances are, if you've been legitimately hurt by somebody, if their words were intended to cut you down, guess who else is angry? God is. So we bring ourselves as we are. And this psalm, and all the psalms, actually remind us of that reality. Here's what this means for us. When we pray our anger to God, we release it to the one who will act on our behalf, on behalf of the poor and needy. Because remember what the psalm goes on to say next. It says, I know, I know, I know. I know that the Lord secures justice for the poor. That's what he does. That's who God is. And he upholds the cause of the needy. Surely the righteous will praise your name and the upright will live in your presence. We pray our anger to God, trusting him and his justice. And guess what we do? Oh, pardon me, guess what we don't do? We don't spew that into the world. We bring our anger to God just as it is, and then God meets us. He comforts us. and He even changes us. Here's what theologian Clinton McCann Jr., he says of these types of uh, imprecatory psalms. He says, this vehement, violent-sounding prayer is, in fact, an act of nonviolence. Really? Sounded pretty violent to me. It's an act of nonviolence because by praying your, praying your anger, you are not enacting your anger. You're leaving it with God. Talking to God about the injustice we see protects us from becoming the unjust oppressor against the oppressor. Does that make sense? It protects us from becoming just another one of the same things that we were being hurt by in the first place. So we might be offended by the cursing sort of language here, but I think we can appreciate the feelings behind them because we feel them too. And expressing it to God is an act of trust and even nonviolence because we leave it with him. So here's where the significant shift comes. Third, we pray our pain because God cares about it, but we don't need to pray it against persons, I don't think, in the same way as the psalmist does. We don't need to pray judgment over evildoers because we trust that God will one day deal with all evildoers in exactly the way that he sees fit. And in fact, we even pray that God would bring those who do evil to himself, that they'd be forgiven and changed. See, what the psalmist doesn't yet know is how in the future God will, through his son Jesus, put a final end to sin and death and evil. At the cross, Jesus dies to pay for the sin of humanity so that all who trust in him will not face God's final wrath. Sin, evil, and death, they're ultimately conquered. And so even though we might experience uh, the result of, of sin that's still in the world, we know that one day we'll be finally free, that evil will be dealt with, that in the kingdom of God, when he renews all things, there will be no more crying or tears or death for, as we read in Revelation 21, uh, the old order of things has passed away. So we can leave it with God. Um, one scholar says it like this, the Christian community reads the psalmist's cry for vindication in the larger context of the biblical story that reaches its climax with the gospel of God's triumph over all the power of sin, death, and darkness. So now we keep praying, and we do actually pray against an enemy, but it's against the evil one himself, God's enemy. Here's what Paul says in Ephesians 6. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood. It's not against other people, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Though we pray our anger, 
at the sin and violence and painful words that come through others, even to us, the real battle in prayer is against those patterns of violence and evil that are at work in the world. We're praying against God's enemy, God's ultimate enemy, enemy, the spiritual forces of evil. And we know that through Jesus, that enemy has already been conquered. Two quick take-home points as we close today. Um, I think I put on your handout as watch your own words. Does that sound right? Yeah. Of course, I was thinking, watch your words, like you might hear someone say, but I don't talk like that, so I wouldn't say that. Uh, or no, watch, watch your mouth. That's what I had written on my sheet. Yeah. So the psalmist, the psalmist is speaking of the pain that's been inflicted on him through the words of others. And, and, and that should warn us. Off the top, we looked at James and Paul. James says both, you know, praising God and cursing others shouldn't happen. Paul says only wholesome talk, not unwholesome talk. Everything that comes out of our mouth should not be relationship damaging, but relationship building. See, we all need this warning as well that brings us back there because Psalm 40 is actually, 140 is quoted in the New Testament. Once is the only place I could find it. And, uh, but it's quoted in a way you might not expect. Uh, in Romans chapter 3, there's this part where Paul is arguing that all humans have actually been opposed to God in some way or another. That all have sinned, he'll go on to say, and fall short of the glory of God, meaning all of us need to trust God for his grace. But what, Saul, what, what Paul does is he actually quotes Old Testament texts to show that this is true. And Psalm 140, verse 3, he says this, the poison of viper is on their lips. And guess what? He's talking about me and you. And he's saying this is evidence that all people are broken and they need God's forgiveness. It's because poison is under your lips too. Uh, C.H. Spurgeon, um, 19th century British preacher, he says that poison lies under our lips ready for use. And alas, it's all too freely used when we grow angry and desire to take vengeance upon any who have caused us vexation. So just in case we thought that the evildoer of Psalm 140 was some particularly bad person, well, Paul uses this verse to say it's actually me and you. That should be a warning, that we're all capable and actually culpable of using our words in a way that injures. In reality, and this is, this is just true for me, most of the time when I need to approach somebody and ask for their forgiveness, it's because of something I've said. That, that's kind of the thing that I think many of you probably relate to that. And so here's the reality. God, in his grace, forgives us when we confess that to him. And we are going to need to seek to say, I'm sorry to other people too. And so maybe this is our prayer this morning. God, give us your Holy Spirit to, uh, to help us to watch our words, to use our language in such a way as it builds others up. God, would you do that? Because we need you. Amen. Um, Proverbs 5.1, maybe this is our kind of one of our take-home verses. It says, a gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. Yes, pray your anger, but then let God's grace change your heart so you can give a gentle answer to others. And then last, praise is the anti-venom. The Psalms are so valuable to us because they keep us from putting on a front before God. They keep us free of pretense. We come honestly before God with our laments, with our pain, with our tears, with our anguish, and even with our anger. But this is key. 
this psalm and many others don't end with us talking about us. It ends in praise of God. God is the subject and the object. He is the end of the psalm. Even our cursing ends with celebrating God for God's goodness and justice. It's reminding ourselves in the process that he is present. Verse 13, surely the righteous will praise your name and the upright will live in your presence. One scholar says it so well, praise is the anti-venom that releases the believer to live a vengeance-free ethic rooted in the reality of God. Expressing our anger to God doesn't end with us at all. It ends just recognizing the glory of God and trusting in him and his justice, trusting in the promise of his presence. Let's pray together as the worship team comes to lead us. Father, we thank you for this text. We thank you that it enables us to pray our anger and our pain, to ask for protection. Father, we also thank you that, um, that you've been at work through your son, Jesus, and you've called us now to love our enemies. So help us to do that well, Lord. Help us to, in our praying, experience you in such a way that we're transformed, that we experience your presence and your help. And we commit ourselves to you, Jesus, in the life you're calling us to, one that is uh, free of verbal venom from us and ready to give a gentle answer to others. And we pray this in the name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen.